but we're still in this series, Walk Humbly. What does it mean to walk humbly? Um, if you have your phone, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have things you want to uh, contribute to the sermon this morning, you can send them to 360-818-4399, 360-818-4399. Four three nine nine. I will not spam you with uh, requests for funds for tons of turkey or things like that. Just uh, looking for ways to in- include you and bring you into the conversation so it's not just a monologue with me standing up here. Now, uh, a lot has happened this last week. Before we get into, this, into the sermon, I want to um, stop for a second. We'll get to that later. And uh, first, I, I want to I address what's going on around the world. You know, Paris, Baghdad, um, what was the third city? Baghdad, uh, Beirut. Beirut, yeah, thank you. Um, this is, uh, this is, this is not a religion problem. Um, what it is, is we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We are seeing before our eyes, played out in front of us, the effects of sin in the world. And when sin takes hold of, of people in such a way that they are driven by selfish pursuits, yes, I know it's, it's in, some of it's in the name of religion, who knows all of the, all of the agenda behind it, but there is, there is terror that happens around the world on a consistent basis. There's terror that happens in our country. There's terror that happens in every country on a regular basis. The problem is not between religions. Uh, we, could, we could have a debate. We could talk about uh, how uh, uh, some of their, their teachings would lead them to that. And if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that after the service. And we have others here who, who are very knowledgeable in that way. But the biggest problem that, that is playing out before us is sin. The, the, we live in a broken world, we live in a fallen world, and the only answer to that is the gospel. The only answer to that is Jesus Christ coming in and radically changing people's lives. And a lot of things that you're not hearing, there's a tremendous story that's taking place, and maybe some of you have seen it, uh, but there's, there's actually uh, over 10,000 people now who were in Islam who have had the same dream, and it's Jesus Christ coming to them in a dream and asking them, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you, why are you, why are you killing my, my people? And they actually, over either immediately or over the course of several times of having the same dream, have turned around and come to Christ. Upwards of 10,000 is a huge number of people who are walking away from that because of what they're doing. The answer is not, uh, it's not going to be found in politics. The answer is not going to be found in religion. The answer is not going to be found in government. The answer is not going to be found in diplomacy or strategy or any of those things. The only real answer, the only true answer for any of this stuff is the gospel. And this is why we as a church are so motivated about the mission of spreading the light of Jesus Christ into a very dark world. Martin Luther King said it really well. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So the only way to go into the darkest places of this world is to shine a light. We don't, we don't battle darkness with more darkness. We battle darkness with the light. We don't battle hate with more hate. We battle hate with love. But while we're talking about that, I just wanted to stop and pray for uh, the people in Paris. Uh, we have, through an old church, we know someone who's got a kid there and uh, they're safe but I want to pray for these cities who have been greatly affected. Heavenly Father, we know that around us on a constant basis there's a reason to be afraid. There's a reason for fear to take hold of our hearts, take hold of our minds, and to walk trepidatiously about the things we see happening around us. But we also know that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. And that if you can give us a heart of love for those who are the most broken, that we have nothing to fear but only the hope and love of God to share. Father, I pray for those who have lost loved ones who are going to be going through a tremendous period, a tremendous time of grieving, of loss, of questioning those who may even know you, who will go through times of doubting and wondering if you even exist 
as if you're even real. Father, I pray that you would surround each and every one of those people who have lost a loved one, each and every one of those who are in the hospital recovering, each and every one of those who are wounded with those who love you and can shine the light of your love into their lives. Father, I pray for the believers who are there that you would just give them an increased sense of boldness, an increased sense of the power of your spirit working through them, that they would be able to be your light in a very dark place, and that what we would see happen rising above all of this darkness would be the light of the gospel taking hold of the hearts and lives of so many who are hurting. But Father, pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We pray for you to do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. But we do live in a broken and messed up world. This week should really uh, have shown a bright light on that, and I want to get to a couple of things that's going to lead right into what we're talking about this morning. Now, um, my sister posted a week or so ago about a pastor uh, and his wife who was shot while he was at the gym, and my sister lives right around Indianapolis, Indiana, and this is the church was in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was a Wesleyan church, which was what I grew up in, so there were a, a lot of people connected to this family there. Uh, it's a very close-knit community in terms of the denomination there in Indiana. That's where the headquarters for the whole Wesleyan, the global Wesleyan church is, so there's a lot of tight-knit Wesleyan groups there. Uh, but my, my sister... Uh, posted about it and kind of shared it, and you know everyone there was was shaken about it, and they were doing things to try to raise money for the pastor. His wife was shot while he was gone. They rushed her to the hospital, and she later died about 12 hours later. But then I noticed last night, yesterday afternoon, while uh, I was on Facebook, that KGW posted an update to the story, and I wanted to show you that post. So you see here, uh, police in Indianapolis are saying. We found clues, we're gonna get the guy who did this. But I don't know if you can see at the very bottom one of the top comments. Do you see what that says? It says, in the movies, the pastor was always having an affair and killed the wife. Now, I wanna scroll through a couple more comments that were in this post. Go to the next slide, here we go. This is Paul, Uh, he's asking, was this part of God's plan? By the way, I don't have a problem using their name, they put their name in a public forum, so. Um, There was a case similar on Dateline. The husband worked for Joyce Meyer's ministry. He said he was at the gym also, and the husband did it. No forced entry. In this case, either pray that's not what happened. And one more. Hmm. He is sketchy for sure. Who's sketchy? The husband. On what are you basing your observations? Nothing. Just a skeptic in these situations. Can we go back to the picture of of the couple? The The... the first slide there of the, there we go. He looks pretty sketchy, eh? He is sketchy for sure. But I want to ask the question, why do you think people respond to Christians and pastors this way? Why do you think people respond in this kind of situation? Why do you think the first response would be, Uh, He's guilty. He did it. He's sketchy. Why do you think, if you have an answer, you can go ahead and text it in, 360-818-4399. Why do you think it is that, that people, when they see a pastor accused of something, they immediately assume that he's guilty? Or they see someone who has been a volunteer in a Christian ministry or Christian organization who is accused of something, we automatically assume that they're guilty. Or we just see someone who's been volunteering in a church accused of something, and uh, we just automatically assume, well, of course, because they're Christians, they must have done this. Why do you think that is? Why do you think this is one of the first responses? And if you have an answer, you can text it, or if you don't, you can just shout it out if you want to. But I want us to think about it this morning. Because I think there is a reason. I think there's a very, a very clear reason. Maybe we need to go back and watch a little more of The Family Man. Here's one, the media or the world has trained us to think this way, that's true. I won't argue with that. Ignorance, that's also true. People are responding to us this way because they're ignorant about the facts of the case or ignorant about our personal lives. There's a lot of, a lot of possible reasons there. 
But let's go back to Jack here in the story of the family man, and uh, there's another clip I want you to watch between another exchange that takes place here. So back to my question, why do you think people respond to Christians and pastors this way? Why do you think people respond to Christians and pastors the way that they do? An answer came in, the, the reason is crystal clear, the prince of the air controls what we are told and shown by the media. Bad apples in the bunch, there are some bad apples in the bunch, there are some people who have made mistakes. Yeah, someone said this movement made Starbucks millions of dollars, that is true. <laughs> He's so religious that people don't like it. Why do you think people respond to Christians and pastors this way? The fall, the fall, that's a great answer. Uh, Starbucks doesn't care about Christmas or Christians, so don't help feed the fire. Jesus said that the world would hate us because of him. These are all great answers. I don't really need to teach anything. You guys know everything. I saw this whole thing unfold, and if you, if you send in more answers, I'll try to get to them, but um, I saw this whole thing kind of going on, and I actually saw this video, and um, this video went viral. If you didn't know that, this video went viral. This had like 13 million views in about like three or four day period, so it obviously struck some kind of nerve, and um, I think probably a, a lot of you know, good-intentioned Christians probably thought, that's a good idea. How do I know that? Because I thought that. I saw the, I thought, that's a great idea. I can go into Starbucks and I can order my coffee and they'll say Merry Christmas and everyone will hear it. But then as you start to, as you stop and think about um, the perception of Christians in our country, the people who are actually going to be standing behind the counters in, this, in these scenarios, probably there's a good chance that they're far from God. There are people who are, who are standing there behind the counter. They are far from God. They have no, they have no hope at this point. They, they're, all their hope is based in themselves and what they can do. And here comes a Christian with a baseball cap on backwards, and he says his name is Merry Christmas. First of all, that's dishonest. Second of all, why do we feel the need to impose our religion because this is the religious aspects of Christianity, right? I mean, the, the need for our country to celebrate Christmas the way believers celebrate it, that's, that's religious. That's, we want people to celebrate the religion of Christmas even though they may not believe in the person of Jesus Christ. And we want, we want to kind of force people's hands, like, you know, this is, this is a Christian country. We're founded on Christian principles. And I will argue that to the nth because I believe that. And if you go back, I think that's what history teaches us. And if we want to go back and see the actual history of our country, yes, our Christianity played a significant role and Judeo-Christian ethics played a significant role in the founding of this country. Yes, that is the truth, but at the same time, you cannot, through a government, force people to believe in a savior. And you cannot, through a society, force people to accept Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of what we do is red cup Christianity, right? I think a lot of what we do is, you know what? Uh, it's easier to force someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to say Merry Christmas than it is to live like Christ in front of them and so, Christians respond to the actual, or non-Christians respond to the actual tragedies that befall Christians in ways like we saw on Facebook. Why do you think our society has become so disenchanted with Christianity? I think the real heart of the matter is that somewhere along the way, we stopped walking in humility. I think we even started walking with pride and hubris. We, this is our land, this is our country, this is 
America is, you know, our Christian utopia on the planet. And while it may have been, and while that may have been part of the aim in creating the country, we cannot force people to believe. Starbucks doesn't want business from Christians. That's why the cups don't have anything on the red cups. That may be very true if you know anything about Mark Schultz and, uh, and, the, and the Starbucks organization. Could be very true. But I was thinking about it, how could we kind of reverse things? How could we change things around a little bit instead of forcing people to say Merry Christmas? Too often we react with hate and, and spite instead of reacting in love. That's a good response. How could we kind of turn this thing around a little bit? And if you have ideas, I would love for you to send them in. But I, I didn't do this this morning because I just got a drip coffee so they don't call out your name when you get a drip coffee. But what if we started having them write things on the cup that were encouraging to the person who was, who was shouting them out? So like, when they say, what, what's your name? You know, it's still lying. But what if you said, I am awesome? So that when they shout that out, they're shouting out to the whole Starbucks, I am awesome. <laughs> or I am amazing. You know, put that on there. And then they shout out when your coffee's ready, I am amazing. Your coffee's ready. Or I don't know. If you have ideas, go ahead and send them in. You're never meant to control the country, but to be a blessing to the country. I am a Christian. I am too. I think we need to stand proud as believers in society. I don't think we should in any way be ashamed of our Christianity. I don't think we should for a second, you are an amazing child of the Most High God, or the Most High. Have them write that on there. That's a lot of writing. You might just put that on a sticker and have them put it on there. But we, we are called to stand apart and, and, and look different and be different, but it is not through condemning an unbelieving world. It is by shining a light in the darkness. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to pull them out and go to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't, you can uh, pull out the app on your phone. There's a free Bible app you can download and go to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's a great thing to have on your phone. You have access to the Bible anywhere you are. You should have a Bible, so if you don't have a Bible, let us know, and we'll make sure you get a Bible so that you can have a Bible that is your own, that you can read, that you can underline, that you can, can take notes in and make it your personal journey with God as opposed to reading it off of a screen. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not opposed to technology. It's just Bibles are a good thing to have in your possession. First Peter chapter 5. While you have your phones out, if you want to check in on Facebook, let the world know you're here. That helps get our name out there into different circles, different people hear about us that way. A little free advertising. We always appreciate it. This passage, what about asking the barista their name? and asking how they are doing, thanking them for their great service. Yeah, how about actually caring about the person behind the counter and having a dialogue with them and encouraging them? First Peter, uh, this is written to the, what is called the diaspora, or, or the Jews who were kind of dispersed from Jerusalem. And so uh, Peter is writing to an audience of people that he probably really in all earnestness, doesn't actually know where they are, but his letter is going to get passed around, and people who have now been forced out of Jerusalem because they've been following Jesus and, and uh, the, the Jerusalem was overthrown, then they are going to now go out, and this is how the gospel really starts to spread into the world. It goes out from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria into all the uttermost parts of the earth like we are familiar with in the first chapter of Acts, verse eight. And so this is, this is kind of how this, how this happens. But as this is happening, Peter, 
probably hears some concerns or you hear some issues that have arisen as they have left their hub, as they have left their safe, comfortable spot of being gathered together all in one space, and he's noticed some issues, and so he wants to correct them so that as they go out and as they go to the ends of the earth, that their, their light, their gospel is being shared correctly, that they're not turning people away from Christ and turning people towards power and control like the old guard did before Christ came in the Old Testament, but that they're actually pointing people to Christ by the way that they live. And so he's kind of laying a lot of that out throughout this letter in 1 Peter. Now in 1 Peter chapter five, he's talking specifically to the elders of the church, but we're gonna get to a point where he doesn't. So let me just, let me just start at the beginning of this chapter. 1 Peter chapter five, verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So I exhort you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, so that was for the elders, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is the only command so far to the younger. Be subject to the elders. And then listen, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Does that scripture sound familiar at all? Anyone recognize that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? Has, has anyone heard that? You probably heard it last week when Rob was talking from James chapter four because in James chapter four, James actually quotes the same thing. And I wanna just make a quick connection here. James was Jesus' half-brother. Peter, we all hopefully know Peter. Peter's the the, the guy that said, you know, he was gonna stand in Jesus' way and not let him go to the cross, and so Jesus rebuked him and called him Satan. It's a great way to encourage one of your followers, but uh, he was Jesus, he knew what he was doing. Peter's the guy who took out a sword and cut off somebody's ear. Uh, probably not the best uh, fighter because you know he probably wasn't aiming for his ear, right? I mean, maybe he was, maybe he just, but he's, you know, he's Peter, and. So Jesus fixes that problem. Peter denies Jesus three times, and then after we we hear how Jesus uh, talks about Peter feeding his sheep, and so it's interesting to make the connection between where Jesus has encouraged Peter as feeding his sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And here he's talking about shepherding the flock in a very similar way. Peter was one of of the closest disciples to Jesus. James was Jesus' half-brother. We pay close attention to what they say because they walked with Jesus. Listen to, his, listen to his reasoning for why you should do what he says. He says, so I exhort you, the elders among you, as a, fel- a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You should pay attention to me because I was there. <laughs> listen to what I say because I walked with Jesus. I saw him flogged, I saw him punished, I saw him hanging on a cross, I saw him when he was resurrected, I saw him when he ascended into heaven. Pay attention to what I'm saying because I was there. What do I say? I say shepherd the flock, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, willingly, not for shameful gain, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. To the flock, and then verse five. Likewise, you are younger. Be subject to the elders. Why do we? Th- why do you think we have a, a problem with with uh, younger in the church wanting to be subject to the elders? Of course, it's because of the falls. Because we're all fallen and broken people. But could it also be that throughout history, those who have who have uh, exercised their oversight have done it for shameful gain? They've done it to domineer over those in their charge. They've done it to control, they've done it to manipulate, they've done it to have power. Could that be the reason why so many people view Christians the way that they do and they just assume Christians are out for personal gain is because so many Christians have been out for personal gain throughout the years. Maybe that's why it's hard for people to trust Christians in the church anymore. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another, all of you. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It wasn't enough to just stop there. Verse six, he continues on. He says, humble yourselves. Three times in about two sentences, he uses the word humble or humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, talking about those who have been spread out through Jerusalem, those who are experiencing suffering. You are in harmony with them. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. Well, what is humility? What is, what is humility here where, where Peter is talking about being humble? What does he mean? I looked it up because I wanted to know. I wanted to have the right answer. Humility is having a humble opinion of oneself. Okay, well, it uses the word in the definition. That's not really helpful. A deep sense of one's, and they add in parentheses, moral littleness. A deep sense of one's littleness. I really like that definition. Modesty, humility, lowliness of mind. A deep sense of one's littleness. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about God and how a lot of our problems in life come because we have improperly defined who God is. We've used our human words and our human terms to try to define God and we've tried to use our human understanding to try to understand God and we come miserably short to this, to this God who exists outside of time and space and he's imminent and transcendent and all of these fancy words that we've tried to use to explain that there is this God who exists beyond all of that and here we are on this planet extremely small, right? I mean, we're, compared to the God of the universe, we are little, a deep sense of one's littleness. And when we compare ourselves to Christ and the work that Christ did on the cross, we know we can't compare to that. We can't live a perfect life. We cannot die for someone else's sins because we would have to die for ours if we had to pay that price. So even compared to Jesus, Morally, we are small. Clothe yourselves in humility. What does it mean then to clothe ourselves in humility? This is another interesting word. I really, BibleStudyTools.com, if you, ever, if you ever have a chance to use that when you're doing your Bible reading and your Bible study, you should go do that today as you read through 1 Peter chapter 5 again to make sure that what I'm saying is actually what's said throughout this passage. But go to BibleStudyTools.com and you have to use the NASB, but then there's a little box where you can check Strong's numbers and you can actually go through and read the definitions behind all of these words. So this is what I did when I was doing this. I went to Bible Study tools.com and I looked on what it means, what's the definition of clothe when it means clothing ourselves. You know what the definition is? is not, it's a knot or a band by which two things are fastened together. That's what it means. It's, it's not just the idea of putting on a coat, but it's actually being fastened together with humility. So when Peter is, is talking about it, yes, he's talking about clothes, says to fasten or to gird oneself. We're not going to get into what it means to gird oneself because we can talk about that later, um, if you don't know. But uh, a knot or band by which two things are fastened together. Clothe yourself in humility. So we are supposed to be banded together with humility. So we're supposed to link arms with humility, and humility is what we walk with down the street. We're supposed to be banded, tied up, knotted with humility. Isn't that interesting that that we who know that we're saved, that we have grace, that we've been covered in the righteousness of Jesus God, our Jesus Christ our Lord, that we've been, we've been covered and we have all of these blessings that we receive, we're supposed to walk in humility. 
Why do you think Peter is writing this? Because there was such a tendency, and you can read this through a lot of the rest of the New, Test- uh, New Testament, there or it was a tendency to once you have been covered in grace to then walk in pride because I am, be- I am covered in Jesus. And then, of course, there's a tendency to use it for our own advantage and for our own good. Peter said, no. Clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility. This means the older among us who have tremendous life experience, the older among us who who have walked with God for years and years and have so much to share, we don't lord that over the people under us because we're clothed in humility. We're walking hand in hand, arm in arm, knotted up with humility. Those who are younger, who are passionate and full of fire and ready to go out and conquer the world because you're 18 and that's what you do when you're 18. You're supposed to be clothed in humility. Notice the difference between being clothed in humility and being clothed in pride. When you're clothed in pride, what happens between people? When you're clothed in pride, what happens with, I'm, impr- I'm proud, and then a person next to me is proud. When we come together, what happens? One of the easiest ways to illustrate this is probably something that you've all experienced is the one-upping that happens in our conversations, right? Somebody comes in and tells a story. Yeah, when I was 17 years old, I went out and I was hunting and I caught this six-point buck. Yeah, man, you'll never believe it. When I was 15 years old, I went and I caught a 17-point buck. What? You're making stuff up. No, because I didn't tell you that when I was 14, I went out and I actually, I actually shot a moose in Alaska. Well, right, I mean, that's what happens when we're pride and when we're clothed in pride is we are always constantly trying to puff ourselves up and make sure that we are above and better than the people around us. But when we're clothed in humility, when humility is what binds us, humility actually serves as a joining agent, as something that brings together people around you. So it's humility, you know what? I am morally little. God is big. God is awesome. Jesus is big. Jesus is awesome. I deserve nothing, but I have everything, and I want to, I want to include you in that. Will you walk with me? Let's walk humbly together because you know what? I can't do anything. I know you can't do anything. I know you can't, but let's walk with humility together, and together we walk together, and literally you can conquer the world with humility. We should be banded together with humility. We should not only as individuals, as followers of Christ, be clothed in humility, but as a joint body here gathered together this morning, 6-8 Church, this tremendous opportunity we have every single week to come together and be one body, shining our lights together, and we bring our lights together, and they shine brighter because they were close to other lights, and we go out into the world. We go out into the world as representatives of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, and we shine this light, but we have to shine it in humility. We as a community, we have, we have a value, we have a core value to be walking humbly. We've chosen this passage, Micah 6, 8, on purpose. We want to be people who live this way. We want to be disciples who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly. We chose that because this is what God has prescripted. This is what God has written. This is who we are supposed to be when we are followers of Jesus Christ. We walk humbly, and when we walk humbly, the world notices, the world takes notice because it's so different. Part of the problem is, is that as a whole, as Christianity as a whole, and I don't want you to think I'm just down on all of Christianity because I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but we've gone through periods of time now where we're not very humble anymore. But if you look at the example Christ set for us, which we're gonna talk about next week in depth, next week is the end of the series, we're gonna focus on my favorite passage in all of scripture, Philippians chapter two, and the example Christ set for us. Christ, who was, part of that scripture, Christ, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He was humble. That's the example he set for us. There are exceptions, but the exceptions to what we would be, what would be perceived as exceptions anyway to humility are against the religious people of the day. So it's against 
People in the temple who were taking advantage of others through the guise of religion. Do you know what was happening in the temple? People had animals and things for sale in the temple and they were charging exorbitant amounts or they were changing money because you had to have different specific kinds of money to be able to buy the things in the temple. And so they would charge huge exchange rates to be able to make the change into the right kind of money. So they were taking advantage of people for their own gain. No wonder Jesus was upset. The other exception is with religious leaders who also use their religion to take advantage of people. They use their religion to force people to come under them so that they could puff themselves up with pride. It's no wonder people assume Christians and pastors are automatically guilty. We've given them plenty of opportunity to think so. We also tend to forget that our war is not with each other. Our war is not between us and other churches. Our war is not between us and other believers. Neither is our war between us and non-believers. There is not a war that we're fighting against the unbelieving in this country. There is not a war we're fighting even against the unbelieving in the world. As far as I know, as far as I have studied, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I would love for you to correct me if I'm wrong because I wanna make sure I'm right on everything, but as far as I have read and I have studied, Jesus was never hostile towards an unbeliever. I can't find one example where Jesus was hostile towards an unbeliever. Even when he was dying on a cross and the unbelievers were mocking him and hurling insults at him, he was still gracious, kind, and caring. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Not once can I find a time when Jesus was hostile towards an unbeliever. So question, why have Christians become so hostile towards other non-Christians? Where did this teaching come from? Where did this idea come from? Where did this practice come from? And wherever it came from, right now at 6-8 Church, we're gonna be a part of the solution. We're gonna stop it. Our war is not against unbelievers. What is our war against? Well, it's a good question. Verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Your adversary, the devil. Who is our war against? The devil. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of this dark world. I think we're well above the curve here at 6-8 Church. I think you are awesome, amazing, wonderful people. I have been so blessed and humbled to be able to serve you as your pastor, and it's because I can have confidence that you are walking humbly. I think we stand out at 6-8 Church because we walk humbly. I think we stand out because we have committed to being that kind of people. And that's the point, isn't it, standing out? Isn't that the point we're supposed to stand out, we're supposed to be set apart? But don't we, as Christianity as a whole, doesn't it really just kind of look like the rest of the unbelieving world now? Doesn't it really all just kind of look the same? Doesn't it all just kind of feel the same? You know, believer, non-believer, we all just kind of act the same way, do the same things? We're not really set apart that much anymore. We've gotten pretty good at blending in. If we want to stand out, it's going to be because we've clothed ourselves in humility. We're not going to stand out by bragging about how godly or righteous we are. You can see what that's going to get you. We as a church are not going to stand out by trying to elevate our church above other churches in town. We just refuse to do it. I believe in what we're doing. I wish more people would do what we're doing, but that doesn't make us better. We're not gonna stand out by being proud and arrogant and demanding. We're gonna stand out because we're clothed in humility. 
Humility is a part of who we are. If we are knotted together with humility, if we are bound by humility, we will have humble opinions of ourselves. We will have an honest understanding of our moral littleness, and that will drive our approach to the people that we shine our light in front of. We will not take, like I said a couple of weeks ago, that flashlight and blind people who are living in the darkness with it and use it to abuse them, but we will shine the light in front of them so that their darkness may be exposed and the light might shine in their life as well. The world will not know we're Christians because we brag about it. They're not going to know we're Christians because we complain about how secular our society is and how this world does not any longer honor our Christian beliefs. Do I wish those things were true? Sure. Have I been on the side that fought for those things in my past? Absolutely I have. but the world will know we are Christians by the way we love one another. And it's impossible to love one another without being clothed in humility. See, the world's definition of love is always based on what I can get out of someone else, and so the world is always broken when it tries to define love. But see, true love is humble. True love is approaching the other for what they actually need. How can I help you? How can I care for you? How can I love you? Not what can I get out of you for my own benefit, but what can I, how can I love you? Humble love lowers oneself so that the other may be elevated. When we're trying to love someone else, We cannot do it from a top-down position. We're lowly, we're morally little. If we loved one another in this way, I have no doubts that the world will notice. If we love our neighbors this way, the world will notice. You know who will notice the most when we love our neighbors this way? Our neighbors. A new command I give to you, love one another. Are we willing to clothe ourselves in humility? To close, I need to borrow something, and I think I've already arranged it. I need to borrow a coat now, so um, I needed to arrange it beforehand because I'm a little bit larger than most people, so I didn't want to be getting a, uh, yeah, I had to go there. I'm approaching it in humility, brother. <laughs> Fat guy in the living That would have been more funny, probably. So here, uh, here is Daniel's coat. How do you zip this thing up? It's got two zippers on it. What is the point of two zippers? Two zippers and Velcro. I mean, there is no air getting in through this thing. Whose coat is this? Daniel's coat. It's mine now. (laughs) Used to be Daniel's. Pretty nice coat. Should I start digging through the pockets? There's gloves in there. Ravi Zacharias shares this story in his book, Can Man Live Without God? And it's a story from someone else. He says, there's a magnificent story in Marie Chapin's book, Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. The book told of the sufferings of the true church in Yugoslavia where so much wrong has been perpetrated by the politicized ecclesiastical hierarchy. This book told of the sufferings of the true church in Yugoslavia where so much wrong had been perpetrated by the politicized ecclesiastical hierarchy. That which has gone on in the name of Christ for the enriching and empowering of corrupt church officials has been a terrible affront to decency. One day an evangelist by the name of Yakov arrived in a certain village. He commiserated with an elderly man named Simmerman 
on the tragedies he had experienced and talked to him of the love of Christ. Zimmerman abruptly inter- interrupted Yaakov and told him that he wished to have nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Yaakov of the dreadful history of the church in his town, a history replete with plundering, exploiting, and indeed with killing innocent people. My own nephew was killed by them, he said, and angrily rebuffed any effort on Yaakov's part to talk about Christ. They wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses, he said, signifying a heavenly commission. But their evil designs and lives, I cannot ignore. Yaakov, looking for an occasion to get Simmerman to change his line of thinking, said, Simmerman, can I ask you a question? Suppose I were to steal your code, put it on, and break into a bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in the distance but could not catch up with me. One clue, however, put them onto your track. They recognized your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? Simmerman said, I would deny it. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say, retorted Yakov. This analogy quite annoyed Simmerman who ordered Yaakov to leave his home. Yaakov continued to return to the village periodically just to befriend Zimmerman, encourage him, and share the love of Christ with him. Finally, one day, Zimmerman asked, how does one become a Christian? And Yaakov taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin and of trust in the work of Jesus Christ and gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. Simmerman bent his knee on the soil with his head bowed and surrendered his life to Christ. As he rose to his feet, wiping his tears, he embraced Yaakov and said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and whispered, you wear his coat very well. My question for us this morning is, how do we wear his coat? Clothed in humility or clothed in pride? Is our coat representing ourselves and our fallen nature? Or are we clothed in the humility that comes by following Jesus Christ? How do we wear his coat? How do I wear his coat? How do you wear his coat? My hope and my prayer, and oftentimes my joy about our church, is that we wear his coat well. Let's stand together. If you're here this morning and you have been wounded by the church, if you have been taken advantage of by the church and someone has used their power in the church to abuse you, I apologize. I may not have been the one who did it, but I apologize that it happened to you. And I hope and I pray this morning that you will give Christ another chance. I'm not even asking you to give me a chance. I'm not even asking you to give 6-8 Church a chance. I'm asking you to give Christ another chance. Don't let the bad experience of your past ruin what Christ has for your future. So if you're here and you've been wounded and you just... You want a new shot, a second chance at following Christ, this is your chance this morning. If you are here and maybe you, like me in the past, have wounded people by lording your religion over others and it's time to repent of that, then let's make sure that when we walk out of this place together, we're walking out under the blood of Jesus Christ, wearing humbly the coat of his righteousness, not the coat of our own religion. But for all of us, I hope that we will stop now and we'll remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us so that we could be sons and daughters of God, so that we could wear the coat of his righteousness. And we'll stop and we'll remember that. We'll stop and we'll be thankful for that. We'll stop and be grateful for that. We'll stop and be amazed by that. We will stop and we will be astounded that I get to wear his coat I get to be covered in his righteousness. I get to be a son of God. I get to be a child of God. 
And we'll continue to walk in awe of this free gift that's been given to us. We'll continue to walk in awe of what Christ did on our behalf so that we could be humbly walking as servants of God. Being humble does not mean putting ourselves down. It does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean letting others take advantage of us. What it means is we make much of Jesus and we do our best to lift up others around us. We do it because we're valuable. Because each and every one of us in this room is valuable. You're priceless because every single one who has wandered and walked away from God or maybe never even walked toward God, they they are valuable and they are priceless. God wants desperately for them to be in his kingdom. God wants them to be sitting at his table. He wants to welcome them in as sons and daughters to the kingdom of God. The way that that's going to happen is not by going out and showering down condemnation. It's going to be going out and walking humbly, being clothed in humility is how we shine our light. So we're gonna stop and remember, we're gonna remember the sacrifice, we're gonna be reminded of why we are humble. It's because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you did what I couldn't do so that I could have what I couldn't earn. I thank you that you've given me so much, that you have placed on me so much I thank you that you have given each and every one of us in here who has put our belief on you and has put our faith in you and is walking with you, that you've given us all this wonderful, indescribable gift. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you did through your son and because you see value in us, you see worth in us, you see dignity in us made in your image and you want to redeem that image and body, mind, and spirit. Father, I pray that as we take communion together that we will be reminded of what you did for us and that we will be filled up with fire and passion to go out and walk humbly. That we will be filled with with a desire to go out and reach the lost and not do it by saying things that's going to bother them, not do it by saying things that are meant to hurt and condemn, but by saying things that are meant to lift up to build up and to draw people into your kingdom and to your community, to point people to you, not to draw them to ourselves. And Father, check our minds, check our hearts, check everything about our motives this morning so that we are confident we are wearing your coat well. In Jesus' name.